0: Live. Hey everybody, it's Chris here again with another episode of Super Theism, and I'll be continuing reading uh Drake's Thomas Jefferson Was Wrong, A Complete Refutation of the Enlightenment. So the section that I'll be reading today is on uh submission to lawful authority and civil disobedience. So it says, quote, Psalm ninety-four twenty, can a throne of destruction be allied with you? one which devises mischief by decree. Proverbs 28.15 Like a roaring lion and a rushing bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. Hosea 5.10 Princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to follow man's command. Hosea 8.4. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. 2 Kings 19, or 1, nine. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty with his fifty, and he went up to him, and behold, he was sitting on the top of the hill. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. Elijah replied to the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you in your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him in his fifty. Joshua two three, And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from, or where they were from. It came about, when it was time to shut the gate at dark, that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Compare with Hebrews 11.31, that commends her for this lying and resisting of her government. Resistance by fleeing. 2 Corinthians 11.32 In Damascus, the Ethnarch under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the D- Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. Jeremiah 26.21 When King Jehoiakim and all his mighty men and all the officials heard his words, then the king sought to put him to death. But Uriah heard it, and he was afraid and fled and went to Egypt. But the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, so that he was not given into the hands of the people to put him to death. Matthew 10.23 But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Proverbs 8.15 By me kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes, rule, and nobles, all who judge rightly. Section 1. The Biblical and Rational Basis of Lawful Resistance. Glasgow says, in Alexander Craighead's Renewal of the Covenants, National and Solemn League, a Confession of Sins, an Engagement to Duties, and a Testimony as they were carried out on at Middle Octorara in Pennsylvania, November 11, 1743, edited by W.M. Glasgow, quote, John Knox asserts in his first confession of faith, quote, the right and duty of the people to resist the tyranny of their rulers, end quote. The General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in 1649 declared, quote, First, that as magistrates and their power are ordained of God, so are they in the exercise thereof, not to walk after their own will, but according to the law of equity and righteousness. A boundless and unlimited power is to be acknowledged in no king or magistrate. Second, that there is a mutual obligation betwixt the king and his people, As both of them are tied to God, so each of them is tied the one to the other for the performance of mutual and reciprocal duties. Third, that arbitrary government and unlimited power are the foundations of all the corruptions in church and state. In November 1743, 100 years after the signing of the Solemn League and Covenant, Mr. Craighead gathered together all the Covenanters in eastern Pennsylvania, at Middle Octorara, Lancaster County, and after the dispensation of the Lord's Supper, led them in the renewing of the covenants. Here they declared with uplifted swords their independence of an ecclesiastical body that strangely upheld Arastian prelacy, and also declared their separation from the crown, which had so impiously violated covenant engagements on both sides of the Atlantic. The proceedings of this interesting occasion are given in the following pages by those who participated in the transactions. The proceedings were first printed in Philadelphia in 1744 and reprinted in 1748, evidently by Benjamin Franklin, who editorially in the Pennsylvania Gazette refers to the matter. For seven years, Mr. Craighead labored among the Covenanter Societies But failing to receive assistance from Scotland, he removed in 1749 to Virginia, thence to Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. There he became identified with the Presbytery in connection with the Presbyterian Church. Being thoroughly imbued, however, with the principles of the Scotch Covenanters, Mr. Craighead taught them to his people around Charlotte. They, in turn, formulated them into the first Declaration of Independence, emitted at Charlotte, North Carolina, May 1775. According to a reliable author, Wheeler's Reminences, page 278, Thomas Jefferson says in his autobiography that when he was engaged in preparing the National Declaration of Independence, that he and his colleagues searched everywhere for formulas, and that the printed proceedings of Octorara, as well as the Mecklenburg Declaration, were before him, and that he freely used ideas therein contained. In July 1777, according to an order, and after an appropriate sermon by Reverend Cuthbertson, the Covenanters in eastern Pennsylvania swore fidelity to the cause of the colonists. They considered it right and duty to resist the tyrannical authority of an unscrupulous king and oppressive government, and especially so when that authority had per- persecuted their fathers and martyred their ancestry in the maintenance of the truth which the same authority had solemnly sworn to uphold. End quote. The centennial celebration of the Theological Seminary of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America by Princeton Theological Seminary, 1912, pages 521 to 522, quote, I should like, before I close, to indicate another service which our people rendered to this republic. George Canning, one of the most brilliant of British foreign secretaries, clasped hands with Thomas Jefferson across the Atlantic in the bonds of international peace, convinced that Britain and America could stand against the possible coalitions of the world, and declaring as premier, quote, I call the New World into existence to redress the balance of the old. End quote. George Canning only recognized the existence of the New World and induced George IV to do likewise in the King's speech of 1825. But the Ulster Presbyterians did their part in calling that New World into existence. The National League of Scotland and Ulster prepared the way for the Declaration of Independence. A century after the adoption of the Solemn League and Covenant by Scotland and Ireland, the Reverend Thomas Craighead led in its renewal by his people, who with uplifted hands declared their separation from the crown, which had violated the covenant. The Mecklenburg Convention, which was the outgrowth and embodiment of Craighead's spirit, and which consisted of Ulster men, announced in 1775 the principles of of the Declaration of Independence, before Jefferson stamped its words with the impress of his genius, or Charles Thompson of Belfast committed it to the handwriting in which it is preserved, before another Ulster man read it to the people, or a third gave to it the wings of the press. In that period of a nation's birth pains, the Ulster Presbyterians were American, and in their stand they had the sympathy and the powerful moral support of that illustrious Irish statesman, Edmund Burke. The Westminster the Westminster Confession chapter 23 4 says quote It is the duty of people to pray for magistrates to honor their persons to pay them tribute or other duty or other dues to obey their lawful commands and to be subject to their authority for conscience sake infidelity or difference in religion does not make void the magistrates just and legal authority nor free the people from their due obedience to them from which ecclesiastical persons are not exempted, much less has the Pope any power and jurisdiction over them and their dominions, or over any of their people, and least of all to deprive them of their dominions or lives, if he shall judge them to be heretics or upon any other pretense whatsoever. G.P. says, quote, Subjection for conscience sake, tribute, fear and honor is wholeheartedly due to the civil magistracy that can be identified as or due to civil magistracy that can be identified as quote the minister of God to thee for good end quote romans thirteen four this alone is quote the ordinance of god end quote romans thirteen two deuteronomy seventeen eighteen through nineteen second samuel five twelve psalm seventy eight seventy to seventy one it is a flagrant violation of God's moral law, the fifth commandment, to resist the ordinance of civil magistracy, for in so doing, one is resisting God. Quote, Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. End quote. Romans 13:2. To submit to civil authority, quote, for conscience sake, end quote, certainly implies that the civil magistracy in question is approved both by God's moral law and by the people within the kingdom (laughs) only. For only lawful magistrates, not tyrants, are, quote, the ordinance of God, end quote, and therefore are to be given the submission required by the Apostle Paul in Romans 13. Christopher Goodman, a contemporary of Knox, who received the wrath and threats of Mary Tudor Tudor of England for his uncompromising stance as to what constituted lawful civil magistracy, has written, otherwise, if without fear they, i.e. civil magistrates, transgress God's laws themselves and command others to to do the like, then have they lost that honor and obedience which otherwise their subjects did owe unto them and ought no more to be taken for magistrates, but punished as private transgressors. Quote, the ordinance of God, Romans thirteen two, is not equivalent to every civil authority that God in his providence places upon a throne. That which God directs in history by his providence is not necessarily that which he orders by his moral precepts, and it is by his moral precepts that civil magistracy is instituted. Therefore, it must be maintained that quote, the ordinance of God end quote is determined by the moral and revealed will of God rather than by his providential will. Tyrants who claim regal authority to rule over a kingdom cannot receive the conscientious subjection of Christians genesis fourteen thirteen through sixteen exodus seven fourteen note these are both before the theocracy. Judges 3, 8 through 11, Judges 3, 12 through 30, Judges 3, 31, Judges 4, Judges 6 through 8, Judges 11 through 12, Judges 13 through 16, First Samuel 14, 43 to 45, Second Samuel 16, 15, 2 Samuel 18, 6 through 8, First Kings 17, 3, First Kings 19, 3, First Kings 18, 40, 2 Kings 1, 9 through 13, First Chronicles 12, 1 through 18. God helped David resist Saul. Second Chronicles twenty three twelve through fifteen, Hosea eight four, Matthew ten eighteen, ten twenty three, Revelation twelve fourteen. GLP says quote, The prince of this world, end quote, John fourteen thirty, is to be resisted by Christians, James four seven. If Satan, who grants power to wicked tyrants to rule, is to be resisted, <laughs> Should not tyrants who rule by Satan's wicked power also be resisted? If we cannot be subject for conscience' sake to Satan, how can we be subject for conscience' sake to those who rule by his power? Romans 13 is to be understood in the way George Buchanan describes, Paul therefore does not here treat of the magistrate, but of the magistracy, that is, of the function and duty of the person who presides over others, nor of this nor of that species of magistracy, but of every possible form of government. Nor does he contend against those who maintain that bad magistrates ought to be punished, but against persons who renounced every kind of authority, who, by an absurd interpretation of Christian liberty, affirmed that it was an indignity to men emancipated by the Son of God and directed by God's Spirit to be controlled by any human power. It's that anarchism there. To refute this erroneous opinion, Paul shows that magistracy is not only a good but a sacred and divine ordinance. End quote. Rutherford acknowledges a complaint quote, he wrote it when the Senate of Rome had power to declare Nero an enemy, nor a father as not a father, as they did end quote. then replies, quote, "Bodine proveth that the Roman emperors were but princes of the Commonwealth, and that the sovereignty remains still in the Senate and people." The emperors might do something de facto, but Lex Regia was not before Vespasian's time. Yet there were senatus, consulta, and one great one is that that the Senate declared Nero to be an enemy to the state, end quote. GP says, quote, therefore it is affirmed that the habitual tyrant who flagrantly violates the moral law of God is not, quote, the ordinance of God, end quote but rather the ordinance of God and the minister of God to thee for good is he who upholds God's moral law. Furthermore, it is the moral duty of all Christians to resist civil governments which rule by tyranny and establish their thrones by wickedness. The habitual tyranny of unlawful civil governments against God's moral law and against his Christ is manifested in their framing, quote, mischief by law, end quote, Psalm 9420. The following are just a few of the many notorious and habitual violations of God's moral law which are legally protected by national constitutions and civil ordinances in nations today. A. Legal protection of idolatry and false worship within a nation that has been enlightened by the gospel together with a refusal to establish the true reformed religion as the only established religion within that nation. Or in other words, religious pluralism, what we have today, where, you know, there's freedom of religion. Anybody can just believe whatever they want, which is complete obstinacy and belligerency and completely against the scriptures and just creates chaos and disorder. B, refusal to affirm in constitutional documents that God's moral law is the supreme law of the land within a nation enlightened by the gospel but to the contrary, the legal declaration of an immoral constitution to be the supreme law of the land. C. Refusal to nationally acknowledge Jesus Christ as the supreme ruler of the nation, whom all civil magistrates are obligated to, quote, kiss, i.e., to publicly honor in their official functions. Psalm 212. D. Legal protection of public blasphemy against the name of the Lord in all forms of media, a.k.a. freedom of speech, what we have today. C. Refusal to prohibit all unnecessary work on the Lord's Day, the Sabbath. F. Tyranny exercised over families in prohibiting corporal, corporal discipline and home education without government certification. G. Legal endorsement of the slaughter and murder of unborn children. H. Legal protection of gross immorality, sexual perversion, and heinous pornography. I, habitual theft, through unjust and excessive taxes and through inflated paper currency, end quote. Quote, Lawful resistance, not revolutionary anarchy, against habitual tyrants is the duty of all Christians. For subjection, for conscience' sake, is due only to him who is the ordinance of God and the minister of God to thee for good. Lawful resistance will most certainly involve the following particular convictions and actions. The habitual tyrant must be refused the honor which the ordinance of God alone is to be given. The habitual tyrant must be refused subjection for conscience' sake. Though the, though the Christian should obey all the lawful commands of even an unlawful government, both because the command is agreeable to the word of God and because Christians ought to seek to maintain as much order as possible in a nation until biblical changes can be made, for quote, legalized tyranny, i.e., tyranny that has the consent of the people, is ordinarily better than revolutionary anarchy. There can be there can no more be conscientious subjection to a tyrant's authority as quote the ordinance of God than to a murderer's authority or to a thief's authority as quote the ordinance of God. And a moral national constitution which protects and defends the habitual and flagrant violation of God's moral law in both tables cannot be upheld and defended by solemn oaths, nor can allegiance in any way be given to it. A Christian must resist all unlawful commands of the civil magistrate, whether the one issuing the command is a lawful king or an unlawful tyrant. Quote, we ought to obey God rather than men, End quote, Acts 5.29. It is the duty of Christians both to testify against tyrannical civil government and to affirm the moral duties of civil magistracy and subjects under God's law. Civil reformation within a nation cannot occur without a faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the truth of Jesus Christ that sets people free from sin, from ignorance, and from tyranny. Thus the position of civil government espoused and defended herein strongly affirms that the primary resistance offered by Christians against tyranny and civil government is by means of moral persuasion accomplished in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Mark thirteen nine, Revelation eleven seven, and then Matthew twenty eight nineteen and twenty. <coughs> Christians should resist tyrannical civil governments by earnestly praying that God would destroy the throne established by wickedness, that he would be pleased to convert unlawful magistrates who presently are his enemies, and that he would hasten the day when righteousness would shine forth from the scepter of the civil magistrate." (sighs) It is the duty of Christians to flee the unlawful authority of the tyrant when his opposition to the faithful testimony of truth brings persecution to the Christian. It is necessary to make clear that Christians are not to suffer for error or for wicked behavior. If a Christian must suffer, it must be for the testimony of the truth in Jesus Christ alone. Matthew 5.10-12, 1 Peter 3.14-17, 1 Peter 4.14-16. 4, Rutherford says, quote, Christ, the prophets, and apostles of our Lord went to heaven with the note of traitors, seditious men, and such as turn the world upside down. Calumnies, i.e. slanders, of treason to Caesar were an ingredient in Christ's cup, and therefore the author is the more willing to drink of that cup that, toucheth, that touched his lip, who is our glorious forerunner. What if conscience toward God and credit with men... "...cannot both go to heaven with the saints, the author is satisfied with the former companion, and is willing to dismiss the other. Truth to Christ cannot be treason to Caesar." When persecution for the sake of the truth becomes the providential lot of Christians, they must resist the tyrant by fleeing from his unlawful authority and pretended jurisdiction." Fleeing the unlawful authority and unjust sentences of a tyrant is not passive subjection. To the contrary, it is active resistance against tyranny. Samuel Rutherford, one of the Scottish delegates to the Westminster Assembly, states clearly the duty of Christians in such circumstances. Flying or fleeing from the tyranny of abused authority is a plain resisting of rulers in their unlawful oppression and perverting of judgment. As the king is under God's law, both in commanding and exacting exact obedience, so is he under the same regulating law of God, in punishing or demanding of us passive subjection. And as he may not command what he will, but what the king of kings warranted him to command, so may he not punish as he will, but by warrant also of the supreme judge of all the earth, And therefore it is not dishonorable to the majesty of the ruler that we deny passive subjection to him when he punisheth beside his warrant, more than it is against his majesty and honor that we deny active obedience when he commandeth illegally. Else I see not how it is lawful to fly or to flee from a tyrannous king, as Elias or Elijah, Christ, and other of the witnesses of our Lord have done, and therefore, what royalists say here is a great untruth, namely that in things lawful we must be subject actively, in things unlawful passively. For as we are in things lawful to be subject actively, so there is no duty in point of conscience laying on us to be subject passively, because I may lawfully fly or flee, and so lawfully deny passive subjection to the king's will, punishing unjustly, end quote. Royalists object from john eighteen eleven through twelve that we must submit to suffering as Christ did, but Jesus does not flee, which is lawful for royalists, therefore it must be unlawful to flee from these examples if it is unlawful to resist upon these verse in context matthew ten twenty three second corinthians eleven thirty three provide clear scriptural grounds for fleeing g p says again quote. As a last resort against tyrannical civil government, which embarks upon a reign of terror against its own people, Christians may use force and self-defense to subdue the violent rage of the civil magistrate. It has been previously demonstrated, both from scripture and from history, that tyrants may be subdued by force. The intensity with which such resistance should be maintained against a tyrant is appropriately stated by Junius Brutus, If their, i.e., the civil magistrates' assaults be verbal, their defense must be likewise verbal. If the sword be drawn against them, they may also take arms and fight either with tongue or hand, as occasion is. It is affirmed by our Reformed forefathers that resistance by means of force in cases of self-defense is not contrary to biblical commands which call Christians to be subject to lawful magistrates and not to resist them or biblical commands which call Christians to suffer patiently under harsh rulers. Samuel Rutherford has faithfully expounded such biblical passages as those found in Romans 13.12 and 1 Peter 2.13-20, and clearly demonstrates that these passages cannot be made to contradict the rest of God's Word, where resistance by means of force and self-defense is approved, and that these texts themselves do not contradict biblical resistance, whether resistance without force or resistance by means of force. Rutherford Reasons 1. patient suffering under wicked men and resisting them by means of force are not incompatible, but may very well stand together. One act of grace and virtue is not contrary to another. Resistance is in the children of God, an innocent act of self-preservation." as is patient suffering, and therefore they may well subsist in one. The scope of the place, 1 Peter 2, is not to forbid all violent resisting, as is clear, he speaketh nothing of violent resisting either one way or another, but only he forbiddeth revengeful resisting of repaying one wrong with another. From the example of Christ, who, quote, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, end quote. Therefore, the argument is a fallacy. Therefore, the servant who should seek, who should violently resist his master in the aforesaid case, i.e. when his master should seek to kill him, should and might patiently suffer and violently resist. Two, suffering while under wicked ty- tyranny and yet offering a passive non-resistance is nowhere found to be the moral duty of a Christian, except under two extraordinary conditions. One, the passive obedience of Christ in which he was commanded to lay down his life for his people and thus could not resist tyranny. And two, the positive command of God not to resist while suffering as in the extraordinary cases of Christ and the Israelites under Nebuchadnezzar, where the Israelites are commanded to serve the king of Babylon for 70 years as just recompense for their flagrant sin against God. Jeremiah twenty-seven twelve. All these places of God's word that recommend us suffering to the followers of Christ do not command formally that we suffer. Therefore, suffering falleth not formally under any commandment of God. They prove only that comparatively we are to choose rather to suffer than to deny Christ before men. And therefore, neither Romans 13 nor 1 Peter 2 nor any other place in God's Word, any common divine, natural, national, or any municipal law, commandeth formally obedience passive, or subjection passive, or non-resistance under the notion of passive obedience. Number three, the passage in 1 Peter 2.18 calls a Christian servant, not to retaliate against his master by doing to the master as the master has done to him, and in so doing, the Christian is to suffer after the example of his Lord, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. However, the passage does not imply that resistance by means of force is unlawful in cases of self-defense. Number four, when resistance by means of force is necessary in self-defense against the violence of an unlawful civil magistrate, It is not the lawful office or the lawful power of the civil magistrate that is being resisted. Rutherford refers to the lawful office of the magistrate as, quote, the king in abstracto, end quote. Rather, it is the abuse of office or the tyranny in the man who is in office that is resisted. Rutherford refers to this abuse of power as, quote, the king in concreto, end quote. Thus, Rutherford explains, We must needs be subject to the royal office for conscience by reason of the fifth commandment. But we must not needs be subject to the man who is king if he commands things unlawful. But Paul, in Romans 13, forbiddeth us to resist the power in abstract. Therefore, it must be the man in concreto that we must resist. It can be easily demonstrated from the various struggles of Reformed Christians in resisting tyrannical rulers that they did not understand Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 or Titus 3.1, either to refer to a tyrant as the ordinance of God to whom Christians must subject themselves for conscience' sake, nor to forbid active resistance for conscience' sake against a tyrant who happens to call himself a civil magistrate, end quote. The right to be acknowledged as a lawful magistrate cannot be purchased by conquest alone. The Israelites, led by Joshua, conquered the land of Canaan and had divine right to rule over it, not by the sole title of conquest, but by a special act. God did forbid Israel to conquer Edom, which restricts the conclusion. The conquest of Canaan was a judgment of God for idolatry, not a normal pursuit of land and dominion. And John... In John 19:11, Yeshua answered, "You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin." Does this mean that Pilate, who had authority by conquest, had lawful authority as God's constituted magistrate over Messiah? No, Rutherford says. Quote, Pilate's power is merely a power by divine permission, not a power ordained of God, as are the powers spoken of in Romans 13, end quote. Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant by a special providence, and his dominion was by way of permission, Jeremiah 43.10, not by nature or true constitution. I affirm that every conquest made by violence may be dissolved by violence. Rutherford acknowledges an objection, quote, an ill king is a punishment of God for the sins of the people, and there is no remedy but patient suffering, quote. Answer, Amos 4, 7, quote, Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on, while the part not rained on would dry up. Amos 4.8, quote, So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord, end quote. Famine is also a judgment for sin. In this case, are we to willingly starve? Rutherford acknowledges another objection, quote, Under an ill king, God's people are not obligated to do anything but God, quote, he would rather work extraordinary and wonderful miracles and therefore would not authorize the people to deliver themselves from under Pharaoh, but made Moses a prince to bring them out of Egypt with a stretched out arm, quote. First, Pharaoh was not a sworn and covenanted ruler of Israel. Second, the reason God's people did not raise up arms against Pharaoh is that at this time wars were entered into by God's direct command and guidance. We do not have this direct communication in this dispensation, seeing we have the completed canon. Okay, I would disagree with uh, uh, Drake on that point. Third, if we are to make parallels in all these examples, all wars by Messianic nations must receive direct verbal guidance by God before commencing, and this violates the doctrine of cessationism. Okay, I disagree with him there as well. I have spoken to this above. I disagree with all that. He's begging the question, all that there. I uh, disagree on all that. But, all right, well, I think I'm going to end it there. So that's some exposition on uh, what it means to submit to lawful authority in the Bible and what how lawful authority is defined, and also uh, you know, what it means to resist, you know, justified civil resistance. All right, thanks for listening, guys. I'll talk to you later. All right, bye.